You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Charles Albert Tenley was born in 1851 in Berlin, Maryland, which is on the eastern shore of Maryland, about two hours from here. Tenley, a black man, was the son of an enslaved man and a free woman. He was born during the decade in the 1850s when Harriet Tubman was making her underground railroad raids right into the Eastern Shore, right near where Charles Tenley lived. She was raiding the Eastern Shore to liberate her friends and family from the captivity of chattel slavery. And it's into that environment that Tenley was born and raised. He was denied education, denied economic opportunity, and he was denied safety. He was a man living in between times between the time of the system of slavery, which was officially dismantled when he was a teenager, and between the time of true freedom and equality and reparation, which in many ways still eludes us today. Tenley reached adulthood, and he, found, he wound up in Philadelphia. And in Philly, he started working as a, a church sexton or janitor. And during that time, He taught himself in his late teens and early adulthood how to read and write. He began his theological education because he felt called to ministry. And through correspondence courses, which is where you read the books and mail in your work, he received a full theological education. He took his Greek classes from Boston College, took his Hebrew classes from a synagogue there in Philadelphia. And he eventually got ordained in the Methodist Episcopal Church where he started pastoring. He became a gifted preacher, a gifted songwriter, and today he's known as a founding father of black gospel music. He eventually returned to pastor the church where he was once a janitor and grew that membership to a multiracial, cross-cultural congregation of 12,000 people. In his hymns, which speak powerfully and naturally of the struggle and faith in the midst of the struggle that he experienced as a black man living at the end of the 19th and 20th century. He wrote a hymn called I Shall Overcome Someday, which became uh, the basis for the civil rights anthem We Shall Overcome. He wrote a hymn that I've been introducing here in the sanctuary over the last three weeks, which is in my top three of all English hymns called Beams of Heaven. And the text goes like this, beams of heaven as I go through this wilderness below, guide my feet in peaceful ways, turn my midnights into days, when in the darkness I would grope, faith always sees a star of hope, and soon from all life's grief and danger I shall be free someday, I do not know how long twill be, nor what the future holds for me, but this I know, if Jesus leads me, I shall get home someday." I wish I had time to read every stanza to you, but you need to go find it and and read it again. The, The hymn speaks powerfully to the experience of grief and danger, but also profoundly to the conviction of faith and trust in Jesus in the midst of all of it. The Christian gospel proclaims a salvation that has come from by God's grace through faith. Faith is often construed as a blind leap, an anti-intellectual, anti-rational plugging of the ears in the face of scientific fact or in the face of just common sense. But faith in the Bible, however, is a conviction, while being a conviction about things not seen, is not a blind leap. It is not anti-intellectual, but it is a response, even in the midst of grief and danger, to a God who has proved himself worthy of trust. A conviction that there is indeed a star of hope, even during the darkest of days. 
not based on a wish, but based on the character of God. As we close our series today on why the gospel is good news, I want to explore the aspect of faith or trust in God. Straight from the text today, which uses the word faith in three ways. First, I want to talk about the guard of faith. Then I want to talk about the grit of faith. And finally, the goal of faith. The guard, the grit, and the goal. The guard of faith. This letter called 1 Peter is written to a people living in the midst of great vulnerability. These are displaced people. These are refugee people. These are young Christian communities going through the experience of homelessness. The word the letter uses is exile, parapodemoi in Greek, resident alien. People who have found another place to live, but it ain't home. <laughs> People who are living through the experience, the raw experience of grief and danger. And we can't be sure of their exact circumstances or what has taken them there, but it seems to be a good guess that they are Christians who had once lived in Rome but had been expelled through an early persecution, perhaps by the Emperor Claudius in 49 AD. And early Christians were expelled or murdered or martyred by Rome because they violated several kinds of Roman policies. First, they disturbed the public peace of Rome through their public ministry. Secondly, they offended accepted morals of the day because Christian ethics were so different from their pagan neighbors. And finally, three, because they engaged in converting native Romans, which was off-putting to the emperors who wanted to conserve the whole structure of Roman gods and goddesses and the emperor worship. And it's our best guess that these recipients of Peter's letter are part of early Christian communities who were expelled from Rome and sent to other far colonies of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They are part of the diaspora, the dispersion, Peter calls them. So in a letter to suffering refugee people experiencing the vulnerability of their condition, Peter writes first of a God who is a protector, a God who is a guard, a watchman for them. He begins with the fact that God has chosen them. In a world where they are far marginalized and forgotten, God has not forgotten them. They are elect exiles. They have been, God has set his love on them. And in the instability of their life, they are reminded that there is a higher knowledge that knows their circumstances even before they were living in it. The foreknowledge of God the Father. Did you notice that in verse 2? Of a God who has a knowledge beyond their circumstantial fate. But not only that, they've been reminded of a Holy Spirit who has descended upon them and marked them out as holy and beloved by God. And they've been brought to a Lord Jesus Christ who through the sprinkling of his blood and obedience has brought them into a covenant relationship with God. That's the first thing Peter says, that Father, Spirit, and Son, that is who they've been brought into communion with. You might have been cast off by the world, but you are not forgotten by God. And the triune God has worked on your behalf. That's what Peter says. And that leads him to this three verse, uh, starting in verse three, this, this blessed be, this doxology. And he lets them know that they, though refugees, though unstable, they have been born to a new life, a dynamic, alive, living hope based on the fact that Jesus got up from the dead. The Christian faith or faith or trust in God is based ultimately in the fact of resurrection, period, full stop. 
That's the conviction that drove Christians to pronounce the gospel to their neighbors. That's the conviction that bolstered and guarded Christians' hearts in the face of great suffering. Their hope was alive because Jesus was alive. What's ultimately the worst thing that can happen to me? Death. And guess what? I know somebody who beat it. That's what Peter is saying. And therefore, this hope is alive. It's dynamic. That is faith. But it's not only a living hope for the now. Peter says, you not only have it for the now, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So to a displaced people who had probably endured economic loss and instability, who had lost the land that they lived on, Peter says, there is an inheritance for you. Don't worry about it. It is kept in heaven. And kept is an okay translation, but I think a better translation would be guarded in heaven. It is watched over in the presence of God. And he says that inheritance, which is being kept by God, guarded by God in a secure vault for you, it is imperishable, meaning it can't be killed. It is undefiled, meaning it cannot be corrupted by evil, and it is unfading. It is always beautiful and pristine. What is that inheritance? It is life in God. It is hope. It is resurrection, glorified life. But it's not only their inheritance that is being guarded. As R.C. Sproul says, while it, the inheritance, is being kept for eternity, the same power that keeps the inheritance reserved for us is the power that keeps us reserved for the inheritance. It is the power of God that keeps us to receive the full and final measure of salvation. Did you see that? Look in the verses. It's the same God who is guarding the inheritance and guarding the inheritors through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, faith is a grounding and guarding reality amidst the shifting circumstances of this life. It is our trust and our response to all that God has done, all that God has promised. And this, says Peter in verse 6, in this we rejoice. Faith always sees a star of hope. We have a tendency to belittle this movement towards hope as inauthentic to the experience of suffering. But the text, as we will see, is not going to deny grief and trial, but says, nevertheless, in the midst of it, you are protected. Nevertheless, you will not be consumed. You can entrust your hope, your faith, your life to a God who is guarding you, who is preserving you and protecting you. That's why the Psalms every day as they guide us in prayer give us verses like, you are a shield about me. You're my rock. You're my fortress. The gospel of Jesus Christ first grounds you in a work that took place outside of your own effort. Even outside of your own knowledge and the foreknowledge of God. When you were at your worst, God gave you his best. When you were dead, God made you alive. Later in 1 Peter, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. That is the guard of faith. And that's where Peter starts to a people living amidst great instability, amidst people living in vulnerability and weakness and suffering. You are guarded. But this life of faith is not an on-off switch. It's not a once-for-all thing. Faith is in the process of maturing, of refining, of growing strong. Faith's not static, but it's dynamic, and it's developing grit through grief and testing and trial. So that takes me to the grit of faith. 
Look at what Peter says. We're just going to go through this passage, okay? I'm just going to do some Bible study. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes those tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. As Karen Jobes, uh, uh, for now... Uh, a wonderful scholar of First Peter reminds us, she says, the joy of knowing your certain future hope does not make the distress of one's current circumstances any less real or disquieting. Peter is not hiding the fact that these Christians are going through all kinds of grief. They've been removed from their homes. That's grief number one. It becomes clear throughout the letter that they are socially marginalized, economically marginalized where they are. They are suffering with Jesus. We often seek to minimize our own or others' distress in life by emphasizing the hope of the Christian faith. But it's okay to be distressed. It's okay to feel dark emotions. It's okay to be grieved and confused. If Jesus felt distress and anguish, then you can feel distress and anguish. But genuine faith also endures through the painful trial. And that's where the word grit comes, comes in. Angela Duckworth is a Chinese-American scholar of grit, and she says grit is the intertwining of passion and perseverance. She says, enthusiasm is common, but endurance is rare. Many of us are moved and want to feel enthusiasm for something, but we are not ready to endure for it. How many things do you have a list of in your life <laughs> that you started on, but you couldn't quite endure through it? My wife knows my growing project list where I have lacked grit. <laughs> I've been enthusiastic at first, but lacked endurance. We ain't in it for the long haul. But the life of faith and trust in God is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And that marathon is filled with high highs and low lows. I think it's helpful to remember that the one writing this letter is Peter. And I'm going to imagine that since he's writing this letter as the pastor of these churches, that they knew a little about his story. They knew that he had been tested many times and grieved by various trials, and he had been found to be wanting quite a lot. The same Peter who wrote these words is the Peter who freaked out on a boat during a storm with Jesus, and he freaked out and woke Jesus up. And what did Jesus ask him? He says, where is your faith? Where's your faith, Peter? It's the same Peter who was invited in the midst of a storm to come and walk on the water to Jesus. He said, Lord, tell me to come walk on the water. I'll come walk to you. And he starts walking to, to Jesus, and it looks like a historic act. And then he looks around him and sees the waves and winds about him, and he starts to fear. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and says, Oh, you of little faith, little trust, why did you doubt? This is the same Peter who denied Jesus three times in the midst of great grief and danger. Faith is not opposed to failure. It is not opposed to doubt. <laughs> the test, the trial, the temptation continually reveals your lack of faith. That is by design, people. That is how Jesus works in you. I like how Frederick Beekner puts it. He said, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. It keeps it alive and moving. <laughs> it is the moment of doubt where you realize the, the length that you have to go and grow. As Angela Duckworth, back to her, she describes grit. I find it com complimentary to the life of faith that Peter is talking about. 
When she's trying to develop grit in her students of writing, this is what she says. She says, you must zero in on your weaknesses, and you must do so over and over again for hours a day, week after month after year. To be gritty is to resist complacency. Whatever it takes I want to improve is a refrain of all paragons of grit, no matter their particular interests, and no, no matter how excellent they already are. See, God is growing us up, all of us. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, but that is happening in the midst of your test and your trial. Part of our growing up in faith is recognizing the invitation of all of our struggles and trials, both individually in our own life and as a community, as an invitation at the exact point where we are weak, where we have failed, God wants to refine us. See, we rush to, to categorize our tests and trials and sufferings and failures as mere accidents and tragedies, and we, we throw up our hands and we say, Lord, save. <laughs> we fail to encounter the powerful presence of Jesus in the midst of our trials. John Ortberg tells a story about Dallas Willard, who was the man who discipled him greatly in ministry. He says, I remember one time when I hit the most painful moment in my life so far. And I had told a few people that I knew really well, and it was really raw. And the response I would get from people was generally sympathy and support, which I appreciated. But I went to my mentor, and I told Dallas about this struggle, and he said there was a long pause while Dallas waited to answer. And then Dallas responded and said, this will be a test of your joyful confidence in God. <laughs> and John Ortberg said, I don't know anyone else that would say that. But he was exactly right. It was just what I needed to hear. See, our rush is to give people sympathy and support when they are going through their test and often their great failures in life. But what if people don't just need our sympathy and support? What if they also need our guidance to be redirected towards what God is doing in the midst of their struggle? That's exactly what Peter is doing in this chapter. He is comforting them in the midst of grief. Yes, he's given them the guard of faith, the living hope. Yes, and amen. But he's also letting them know that God is not wasting their trials or their sorrows, but that God is using those things to refine them. And this faith, refined as genuine, is more precious even than the most precious material in the ancient world, gold. Why? Because as Peter says, Gold is not even going to withstand the final judgment at the revelation of Jesus. Even that will be burned away. But those who are living by faith, genuine faith and not by sight, we will hold up. That's what Peter says. And that can make you a gritty Christian and give you a gritty kind of faith. We hold up and remember those saints like Charles Tinley and Harriet Tubman and others who have been through some stuff and have gone through some stuff, incredibly difficult stuff, and yet have remained faithful. I hold up many of you in this room who I know your story, and I, I know you've gone through a living hell, but you've remained faithful. I want to be that kind of Christian. Paul says it like this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace through God with God through Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Then he said, in, very, in compliment to Peter, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. There's the grit. And endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame 
Because why? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So these trials in, in my life, these temptations and tests, many of which I fail, are the exact place where I know God is wanting to work and refine me. Don't despair at your failures. Don't despair at your weakness. But see that as ground zero, as the place where God is working on you. And trust that he wants to. That's what walking by faith means. God is wanting to refine me so that I might display a genuine, faithful, and trusting life in response to the Lord who displayed a genuine, perfect, loving life for me all the way to Calvary. And that process of refinement, that grit of faith, leads all the way to the end goal of faith. And that's how I want to close today. The goal of it is found in verse 8 and 9. Some of my favorite verses in the scriptures Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, the experience of faith is deeper than the intellect. It's deeper than being convicted about the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And the experience of faith is even deeper than enduring and grittiness, the experience of faith is ultimately driven by love. Peter says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. It's very tender language. Our trust in Jesus is supposed to lead us to a deep and loving communion with him. You see that in the apostles. The apostles were people who were not just recruited into a system of belief. They were recruited into a friendship with the Son of God. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, I call you my friends. That is the journey of faith. It is a journey from, from alienation to friendship with the risen Jesus. A nearness to his presence, even in the midst of absence of sight. We have not seen, yet we love. We don't see, but we joyfully believe. That's what makes the gospel distinct is that the Christian faith is not just about right belief or right worship, but it is about loving communion with the God who made us, the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. And we forget that most people in the Bible never got to see God. Most people who are named and listed in the Bible as characters never got to see a divine manifestation. You say... If I could just see God, if you, Lord, would just give me a little glimpse, even while I'm asleep, if you take me to the third heaven, then I would have faith. But I need you to understand that the journey of the people of God is a journey of faith and not sight. Peter was one of the rare ones who did get to see Jesus, but most don't. And they, like we, stake their lives on the testimony of faith, chiefly the word that is spoken through the Spirit, which is the Scriptures. John P. Key has a song that I love called Jesus is Real. He says, Jesus is real. I know the Lord is real to me. He just repeats that chorus. And that's my story too. Somehow I find myself up here in this pulpit week after week proclaiming to you the reality of a Palestinian man who was put to death and rose again and ascended to be Lord of all. That's what I do because Jesus is real. At the end, the end goal of faith is salvation. And what is salvation? (laughs) 
it is being brought into full union with the God who made us. Freed from grief and danger, freed and putting a final end to all exile and alienation from God and from one another. It is being brought home. The Apostle John said it like this in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then this is the great aspect of faith that the writer of Hebrew famously puts. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We can have the assurance and conviction of faith because we are guarded by faith because Jesus got up and we are born again to a living hope. We can have the assurance and conviction of faith even in the midst of great trial, both in your own life, both in our life as a church community. As I've been saying for the past couple of weeks, the Lord will lead us down stony roads. We will have to trod them. We will suffer death. We will suffer loss. We will suffer trial and temptation. Things will be shaky and unstable. But God is faithful. So we can trust him and develop the grittiness of faith. And thus, as we continue that journey and reach the end, we reach the goal of our faith, which is God, which is life and God. So at the end of this series, as we have explored why the gospel is good news, may it be good news to your heart today. May you, though you have not seen the Lord, love him. May you, though you don't see him now, believe in him. And may you be filled with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.